Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Frontier Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Krishan, and my guest today is Kian Zandier, the CEO of Sturgeon Capital, a venture and private equity firm that invests in frontier markets such as Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, and more. Um, as I've spent more time studying Sturgeon's approach to frontier markets, I've become increasingly impressed by the combination of art, science, and history that has essentially gone into building uh, the Sturgeon thesis and machine. And so with that in mind, I'm very excited to dig deeper with Kian. And I'll start with a question that is the inverse of what I tend to ask most guests, which is most of our listeners are generally quite excited by frontier markets and their potential. This, as we've kind of mentioned before, should not be naive excitement, however. So we'll start with this hard question. What are the historic ways in which investors and entrepreneurs have failed within frontier markets? And how does that inform your process? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, pleasure to be speaking with you, Krisha. Um, I mean, I think the best way to, to tackle the question probably is to um, maybe go for a very simplified history of what what has happened in emerging markets from an economic perspective. Uh, hopefully, it gives the context as to why various um, actors have succeeded or failed. Um, and 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 I'm, I'm simplifying a lot. There's a lot of nuance that I'm missing. But if you kind of were to summarize broadly, um, an, an emerging market, it's basically a country uh, that that the private sector plays quite a small role relative to the public sector, um, as com as as compared to countries, let's say like the U.S. or the U.K., where the private sector is quite a significant actor within how uh, capital and resources get allocated. And if you generally believe that the incentive systems in the private sector are um, a little bit better, that that result in better outcomes, um, that 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 explains a lot of kind of the difference in uh, GDP per capita. Um, and what what you find that is kind of universally true across emerging markets is that some have very long histories, some have very illustrious histories, um, some are more newer countries, um, but basically they've all gone through a different journey. Uh, to try and get to some form of market system that 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 works. Uh, in the Soviet bloc, it's basically the movement out of communism to forming some form of private sector. In Asia, it was kind of the agricultural reforms that enabled uh, a general level of wealth to then build an industrial base on top of, so on and so forth. But the universal truth is that the private sector has always usually been quite small. And... Um, you basically have across emerging markets a normal distribution curve of outcomes as to how well they've uh, cultivated the private sector and really built a market economy. Um, and so, with with that with that reality in mind, um, as as far as I believe it to be a reality, um, it and you look at who is you you try to understand the right tail of and the left tail of what's worked and what hasn't worked when it comes to kind of deliberate. Um, industry or commerce or investing, however you want to call it. Um, and probably it's worth looking to understand the right tail first before the left tail in the sense that there there has been, again, universally across all of these countries, uh, a group of individuals that have understood that in the first instance, these countries obviously are not producing everything that it could produce relative to what's available in the world. And so become uh, almost traders uh, from the perspective of kind of they're involved in import-export. They may have a certain license to sell a certain product in a country. And that typically is a very high cash flow, high margin uh, business. Um, and typically, these individuals, if you think about the bank accounts 
a lot of money was flowing through them, right? So they usually had good relationships with uh, the, the, the major banks in their own country. Um, and because these countries are going from that transition from um, a public, uh, publicly driven um, uh, system to a private sector system, um, they, they are offered uh, credit, right? Um, and because it's going through a transition, these are typically countries that are very cyclical. They go, they have high inflation, and what the playbook then one then was was largely, what is the most amount of leverage that you could take, that would enable you to buy two types of assets. One were either companies that uh, had some nature of comparative advantage, such that they could export and get hard currency revenues largely involved natural resources, mining, um, uh, oil and gas. Um, and that because you've taken um, loans on in local currency costs and they were being inflated away and you're making money in hard currency, uh, the wealth creation is actually quite significant. Um, the other group were individuals that understood that the, there were certain large uh, markets in, in their own domestic country uh, with very fragmented competition, and that they consolidate. Uh, and when you look at the, the true um, domestic private sector success cases, that I think largely describes uh, what has happened there. The interesting one is obviously the international investors, because they've tried to they've tried to tackle this in various ways. And I think there are a few like international investors, which are, which are third generation families that have understood this playbook as well, and they they've kind of built some kind of conglomerates in their own way and whether it's in Hong Kong or these other places. Um, but largely kind of professional investors, they, they, they took kind of a few approaches. Largely, I think it was kind of very short term in mind that it was, there is a unique macro setup, whether it's good demographics, whether it's commodity super cycle, whether it's anything else, and that there is an opportunity to be capitalized upon. But the point there being an opportunity. So it's, it's. They, I don't think the lens was ever. We will make our bread in emerging markets, and we're going to be here for twenty, thirty years, uh, and we'll act in that manner, right? Uh, it was never kind of thinking about it for that durable lens and the reality of the market, how these are cyclical countries, how inflation is high, how you have political inefficiencies, so on and so forth. Uh, but rather, try to find subsegments that have some sort of cyclical uplift, um, and that. If you think about what the outcomes of that look like on a relatively large sample, is um, the the average is basically below the average of developed markets. The upper quartile is uh, very few and far between, um, and that's in a world where uh, the S and P 500 has just been on a rip. I mean, st- from from 2008 until let's say a year ago. I mean. Again, in the beginning, beginning of this year, it's kind of rallied again. But generally, in the world where the developed market has broadly functioned a little bit better, and, and developed market, I, I'm not in the kind of judgment sense, in the sense that they, they have more of a private sector. Um, emerging markets have kind of drained of uh, liquidity, primarily from the foreign investors, and they have all been going through their own economic journey. And so, really, what is left is the private sector, which I, uh, the domestic private sector, which I described to you earlier. So hopefully that answers your question indirectly. It it does. So I'm, I guess the next question here is how does that observation feed into the way in which you've structured Sturgeon Capital and the trial and error that's gone into uh, building up? Yep. So 
well i think we i think we've been observers of um of what what generally has been working and and hasn't kind of really been studying the history of all of this um and sturgeon uh, in its original um uh, phase let's say was was focused largely on public equities and we had a we had a kind of sample of what what that looks like why one would why one could succeed uh why it's probably a little bit quite difficult to do it in public equities um we'd observed others tried to do it in private equity in varying degrees of success um and the the thing that you did observe especially over the past 5 years though was was something that I didn't talk about was the kind of aspect of technology um in the sense that if you think about what these uh, countries represent they are generally very young populations um they are generally quite smart people and and basically anecdotally the way to judge intelligence is um how successful the diaspora is it's relative to their uh, uh home base and the absolute wealth creation uh, generally by the diaspora of nearly all of these countries is much more significant than what they would be able to do if they were in their home country meaning there is some kind of latent inefficiency in the in their home country so that latent inefficiency is is actually something that uh technology can beautifully solve and if you look at the journey of what technology infrastructure for these countries look like it's basically only recently played out over the past 5 10 years and started with mobile first which is the best way for it to start because it basically means the widest distribution base right um and then you have cloud access to cloud infrastructure which means you can store information and uh, i mean all the indirect benefits and direct benefits that come from kind of cheap cloud infrastructure um and that just those two things we have a diaspora that is um uh uh experienced in what good looks like and a domestic uh uh young population that is hungry and is willing to figure out what good looks like has created uh a number of technology companies across emerging markets that are in essence in my mind um organizing and doing that resource and capital allocation in the most efficient way on scale in many different vectors of the economy um and it just so happens that because these economies are actually quite large and because technology enables you to build distribution in a way that no offline business historically could and drive efficiency down the value chain um that you can extract a lot of um enterprise value from building something like that as well and so that there it's it's nice that they're both joined at the hip in a sense that it's something that truly is creating value and as a result is benefiting countries that severely need it uh, and so you you you'd seen obviously from china to india to latin america to southeast asia how this technology is transforming you have this true leapfrogging where countries are moving towards the most optimal business models the most opt- efficient forms of organizational coordination um and that there are still many many countries left that have that technology infrastructure but are very early in that phase of digitalization that that is uh, a very interesting area to kind of focus on um that is secular and dynamic as opposed to cyclical uh, and two through private equity to focus on um those two those two areas which i said the domestic private sector has also been successful in is uh local comparative advantage export based businesses um local category leaders that can consolidate fragmented market share in large domestic markets um that where the IRR profiles are obviously lower than what you could get on the technology side but we believe that these are very durable very long term 
a pretty high returning assets to own. Fantastic. So would you be able to walk us through one company for each of those categories, starting with the export-based winner with a comparative advantage, moving on to technology company, and then moving on to finally consolidation play on a fragmented domestic market? Yep. So, um, so I mean, on the on the private exit, I guess there are two two investments we're we're making now. One mentioned the companies, but the general essence of I guess what the thinking is behind it. Um, so the two companies are in, in are in Kazakhstan, actually, out of all places, um, and one of them is a company where obviously the country is um, quite uh, 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 has abundant natural resources, um, and so. Within certain areas of the value chain, there's a lot of industrial uh, output and potential industrial output as a result of that. And because the country benefits from uh, relatively low electricity prices compared to the rest of the world, um, it, it, it means that you could you could basically build out industrial capacity at a margin higher than what if someone if someone was to do it elsewhere. Two, um, it also means you can largely export that um, what it is that that product that industrial product. And because you can uh, uh, price it lower than what is the rest of the market in the commoditized world, you will always get market share, largely. Um, and so the investment here is with kind of a very successful industrial group uh, where they're looking to build out ferrosilicate capacity, um, which is basically uh, an element that goes into the pro- uh, steel production. And so what's interesting about Kazakhstan is also that you have, um, it's largely an economy that was built on debt. And you have various institutions domestically in the country that are willing to uh, provide you subsidized debt um, for building out industrial capacity in the country. Um, so going back to the, the leverage point, you have a business that kind of already has offtakes in place, is run by an industrial group that knows what they're doing, has a track record of doing it, um, is, in a com- is in a commodity product where um, actually there are not there aren't too many global players focused on it um and um you have inherent leverage uh in local currency costs at subsidized costs when you're making money in dollars um and we the way we've structured that is that we we're set, if you think about it we're 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 financing the the build out of that industrial capacity as an equity investor to meet the debt to equity ratio of what is necessary uh, but but to protect the downside, we also have a put option with with the with the management that we can we can sell our stake at a kind of uh, an IRR of let's say somewhere between fifteen to twenty percent in dollars, um, which is a, an IRR in a world where people are happy with ten percent. Generally, uh, we think is kind of uh, useful to, to to allocate capital to. So that's that one. Fantastic. Um, the, the the second one in terms of let's say domestic consolidation is um, a company operating in the diagnostic space in a similar country, um, and they have about let's say forty fifty percent market share in diagnostics, uh, medical diagnostics, so um, like tomotherapy, chemotherapy, so on and so forth, um, run by very very talented management. They've built this business from nothing basically over the past uh, five six years, um, and. What we're looking to do is to invest in for them to try and take that market share from 40 to around 80. Um, again, because they're not, there isn't really too much domestic competition, and they've proved that they can uh, build out capacity efficiently and with kind of good customer service. They have, the brand is kind of very well known and well recognized. 
um, and that we we will be investing alongside another group that is um, one of the most uh, uh, experienced healthcare investors in 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 the Middle East and broader emerging markets. So they have deep domain expertise to to build out hospital capacity as well. And the way the way that the way that works is that obviously the government wants the private sector to build out that hospital capacity. So to an extent, they're willing to um, uh, have agreements with you as a private sector provider that uh, basically to an extent over a five, 10 year period, subject to investment commitments, guarantee a certain amount of revenue for you. Um, and again, so what you have is basically, in theory, um, revenue secured, and you're funding the uh, the build out of the capacity to service that revenue at what it inherently is quite attractive margin dynamics. And there, um, this this co-investor that we have um, and for other investors that we're speaking to, I think what we would what would be nice is to for us to basically be fronting them learning about the market, de-risking their entry, and uh, helping them learn about it in the most honest way because incentives are completely aligned. They have to learn about it. And that if the time is appropriate and if they so wish, um, that maybe there will be time that we could maybe sell our stake to them uh, uh, at hopefully a higher valuation than what we've invested in. Um, that's the idea on that domestic consolidation play. Um, on the technology side, I think the the, the view that we have is um, that what you ultimately want to be able to own, if possible, is a combination of a few things. One is uh, front-end consumer distribution, i.e. businesses that ideally have millions of customers. Why? Because in the offline world, there are no businesses that have millions of customers. And if you own distribution, um, you have a means to, one, uh, uh, drive efficiency down the rest of the value chain and kind of ideally extract margins. Um, two is to um, have uh, some form of uh, data on the whole of the pipeline of the economy from um, the industrial sector to the enterprise sector to SMEs to the consumer. And the synthesis of, of that data such that you understand objectively from a data-driven perspective what is happening on a micro and macro level that can then inform um, the, the economy itself through software products, but also is useful to understand whatever products you should be building. Um, a back-end infrastructure of cloud and data analytics um, and a bank. And that if you own the collective of those assets, um, you basically have probably what are some of the most important assets and durable assets in these countries over the next, whatever, 20, 30 years, let's say. And so what we try and do on the venture side and through other activities is to reflect uh, that view uh, through the investments that we make. Fantastic. So I've jotted down a few observations based on what you've shared for our listeners and just for myself to kind of consolidate here. One was when you mentioned the Kazakhstan uh, comparative advantage when it comes to hard industry. Uh, one company that came to mind is a friend of mine was sharing the story of a company that his firm had done an investment in where it was a Bitcoin mining company in Kazakhstan. And if I recall correctly, the break-even price for Bitcoin for them to be profitable was around, if I'm not mistaken, 4.5 to 5K USD for the value yes. of Bitcoin. And as you've seen, it hasn't touched that in about you know five, six years or something. Um, so so it's, it's, it's fascinating to see uh, another example of that in terms of the company yep. that you're zooming into those low energy costs. Again, the, the, the nuance in that though is you could, you could take that as a heuristic and say, 
well, I will just run an electricity arbitrage play, <laughs> right? I, I will I will invest in whatever I can arbitrage from this low electricity price uh, because probably always you can make more. The, <coughs> the, the, the reality, though, is that the, the reason that electricity exists is because the government, to an extent, is subsidizing it. And if there is ever a time where it is seen that it's being taken advantage of, mm. right, to extract profits, um, clearly they will change that policy. So it's important that you don't you you understand that nuance because it would then it would be intuitive to run that electricity arbitrage play, but inevitably at some point in time it will break. Interesting. That makes total sense because if you look at China, for example, they're trying to kick out the miners. And the reason yes. why is because they want to have domestic electricity going to But they, they, they suck capacity. The miners suck capacity. Uh, so that particular mine, I think I know which one it is. Um, they, if I'm not mistaken, have reduced capacity in Kazakhstan a lot for this very reason. And for the government's perspective, it's rational and fair. Why would they just give give away this electricity for like, I mean, so yeah. yeah. I, it was actually, I was, I was Googling it whilst you were talking um, to just see if there were any numbers on it. The one number that I found was <laughs> tax revenue from... Uh, the entire Bitcoin mining industry, yes. which is like seven million US dollars, which is candidly speaking not much in contrast to absolutely. So it has to be money. a fair. It has to be a fair trade. I mean, you can't you can't going and going and thinking people are stupid. <laughs> yeah. I, I, hadn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that particular um, kind of counter example there, but I appreciate that. Okay, so that's that's sure. one. Bouncing on top of the topic of government alignment or misalignment, um, it struck me that for the second example that you gave, you know serving this core function that allows whoever the incumbent government is to then go to their population and say, hey, we've delivered these core services um, is highly valuable. And one thing that I've kind of found interesting in terms of patterns amongst companies, especially in Asia in the last 30 years, that have been able to effectively create these almost symbiotic relationships with the societies that they've been in is almost measuring the degree to which the alignment of a conglomerate's hard capex projects are aligned with say manifesto promises for yes. the population as a result you end up in this situation where again very often the cliche is oh it's very difficult to do business in these countries because the government actively can get in the way of things in contrast here you have a good example of governments very much uh, encouraging you to you know bring the expertise you have and making it easier for you to do so um, because it's doing something that's fundamental and critical to the region yeah, and and I think look that, that that that's an important point because so my my observation as well is is be, forget about the financial investors in emerging markets, um, uh, the multinationals when they look at the countries that we're in, um, I think they clearly understand what the benefit of being in that country is uh, for them generally. The playbook, however, they try to run is to meet let's say, people in the government and say, I tell you what will be the condition before we come. Um, basically, give us 20-year tax break, give us such and such subsidy, give us this free land, and give us a 20-year offtake, and absolutely de-risk us, okay? Uh, and then we'll come in. Okay. If you are on the other side of that conversation, what is the natural instinct that you have? I don't want to repeat what the words would probably be on this podcast, but it, they won't be nice words. Naturally so, okay? The point has to be, um, you have to kind of be willing to do something off your own back a little bit um, in a manner that is naturally aligned with what you probably can say the government would objectively just think it's good for the country to achieve. 
which either they've made very clear in some form of manifest, manifesto, or it's undebatable that it's just generally valuable for the country. And not ask for anything. Right? So, in the venture funds that we... Um, we to none of the countries that we we go to i mean we interface with the government more to learn about how they're thinking and what they how they're seeing the economy and what is the kind of de- dis- decision making framework but we don't go in there saying oh because we invested x amount of money you have to now invest x amount of money with us mm-hmm. right you just go and do the work um and that builds goodwill um right because you didn't ask for anything you've just you've just done you've just kind of acted right um and and maybe with that goodwill, kind of good things come. I in Uzbekistan, the the government proactively came to us and they said, "Well, we see what you're doing on the technology side. Um, we think the pre-seed ecosystem needs a little bit of uh, work. Here's a pot of money and build a system to help create a very very early stage ecosystem in the country." Right. It doesn't really bring, give us any financial benefit, but we think it's important to do for the country. Um, and I think that's a better, that's a positive some way of acting. I mean, I think a lot of what generally the view of emerging markets for, when it comes to both politics and kind of economy is just very zero-sum, which is just the wrong way of thinking, thinking about it. I totally concur. And on top of that, um, a firm like yours is very well positioned, given the 30-plus-year time horizon of, you know, continually reinvesting perhaps in, in these markets, there's uh, a certain incentive for you to also, you know, through that perspective – be able to push forward public goods that therefore feed into larger value being captured later on down the line as well. Um, one additional thing I found interesting in the three examples was the thinking about exits. In particular, you mentioned the way in which you structured the deal for the um, healthcare company with the partner that could potentially be liquidity later on. Um, could you share more about your thoughts on the exit landscape, how it's developed and how it could be better developed or how to think about that within um, these markets. <clears throat> sure. So, um, if you think about, well, well, I'll tell you. I'll start from what my my personal position is. My personal position is that um, I'm 33, and uh, unless I get hit by a bus, I have probably another 30, 40 years uh, kind of of useful life ahead of me. Um, and that largely, I would like to have uh, earned the right to have equity in a lot of what we're investing in. Okay. Um, now the nature of our funds are that if we do a good job, we get what's called carry, uh, and you can take that carry in either cash or you can take it in equity. Um, I will always be on the side of equity. I, whatever we invest in, typically I will take equity on it because we generally are investing with the lens of kind of 20, 30 years. Um, now I realize, or we realize as a firm, uh, that, to get to that point, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your investors to generate them liquidity. I mean, it's not a trivial responsibility. They're entrusting you with capital. You can't. I know you have. You're, it's locked up for a long period of time. It's eight, ten years. I. But I do not want to be at the end of those funds and say, guys, we didn't figure it out. We we didn't know how to give you liquidity, right? Um, so on the private equity side, where you have more tools at your disposal. Um, we try to be creative in how we structure it such that we can kind of have natural liquidity events uh, that are kind of as much as possible legally bound. Um, And on the technology side, starting with the premise that there is enough precedent in these markets that if a business is good enough, 
there will be enough interest in it such that you can create a liquidity event. Um, we simply focus on how do we make sure that we make great investments in good companies and do whatever we can to facilitate the management who are doing really the hard work in trying to great, create really good outcomes um, such that we are in a good position as a minority investor uh, to either sell out, sell a part of our stake that represents our investors' interests to other financial investors, strategic investors, or if it's long-term rational to do so, to try and push for a sale of the company or for an IPO of some sort. There is enough precedent of that happening for companies that are good enough. And yes, there are many companies that many venture firms have invested in and many people have invested in that simply have not been good enough and so they have not got a liquidity event. And I think to a large extent that can be explained by um, uh, the, the nature of interest rates over the past 10 years, where it permeated the whole world, even in our markets, uh, companies raising at objectively too high valuations that became very difficult for them to earn into. And the process of trying to earn into created a break in the company because it, it didn't allow them to build the business with a lens of 20, 30 years. Um, and that, if you think about what the normal distribution of that looks like, the right tail has created magnificent outcomes, and we're obsessed with understanding that right tail. But you have had a, you also have had a lot of kind of normal and uh, sub subnormal outcomes. Awesome. Um, final thing I'll bring up in terms of that list of three uh, companies is you're talking about differentiated or being the first mover to acquire and then refine certain types of data. Um, on top of distribution within these markets. Uh, would you be able to share a bit about the level of uh, sophistication that exists in these markets right now when it comes to both the levels of private business data that exists within businesses, but also then public data that comes out of statistical offices within these regions versus, say, you know, ostensibly developed markets like the UK and the US. Mm. Um, what is the delta between those? And like, what do you think uh, that implies in terms of missed or potential opportunities? Um, it's a really interesting question because you could view it from the lens of um, what is the most important data to have um, that would help uh, a country f uh, function well? not for the sake of owning the data for any kind of whatever um, negative reasons, but purely for the practical reason of it can help objective um, decision-making. And I think, I think at least my observation is that probably the most important that you would need is some form of credit data. And if you unpack what credit data is, it's effectively um, how much can I trust the counterparty um, in, a in, 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 a, in a pure business sense. Not in a kind of, I mean, obviously, your, your personal aspects Im imply how you act in business, but you know what I mean. It and that is a fundamental uh, necessity uh, to build up an incentive system uh, to act in more of a trusted fashion. Not to say that people are not trustworthy, but in a in a way that is objective, that it can be told through data, um, and it can be utilized to create. Uh, capital allocation on a fundamental level through credit, through banks, to allow capital to at any point in time go to its most useful resource. 
So banks are fundamentally important in these countries. The, the, the efficient operation of the banking sector is fundamentally important. And that that cannot exist on um, the, 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 the credit bureaus that generally governments have because they have not had, let's say, the technology bandwidth to really build up that credit data set. But it can be done through, it can, it can be done by technology companies. Okay. Um, every, everything else I think is, is a build up from that. But if you solve for that, that's already um, carries a lot of weight itself. Totally. I can so, talk about the different elements, but, but that's probably the most important one. I think it's interesting to think about, um, in particular, the kind of venture landscape in, in the African continent over the last, uh, I would say, five years. There's been a massive pile-in of money when it comes to fintech. And it strikes me that one of the favorite international investor themes has been uh, fintech within emerging markets as a whole in the last five years. Um, to the extent that you kind of see quite a few copycat companies, not in different regions, but within the same regions as well, um, tackling a market that surely can't sustain these types of companies being there. Um, and I, I, I think when I first saw it, I thought to myself, oh, the reason why uh, fintech is getting so much investment is because it's very easy to capture value. The business models are very straightforward. Um if you hit certain kind of numbers and you tell a certain story, oh, we have two mil 200 million Nigerians, um, e even misinformed capital can tend to be like, oh yeah, sure, at some point this will kind of pay back. Um, but then uh, I started speaking to some folks about the actual kind of like banking systems within some of these places. And one of the things that you mentioned is obviously the efficiency of a banking system's uh, way of operating. Yes. Many of these banking systems have 14%, 16%, 17% uh, interest rates. And the reason why is because they're just not as good at kind of creating a depth of savings from the informal economy. Um, and there's other kinds of, you know, structural constraints internationally as well. Um, so I deeply empathize with the importance of that. Would you be able to share the story of um, Caspi Bank? Because I feel like this is very much the uh, kind of iconic, one of the iconic stories of the potential of these types of, you know, firms building yes. up in frontier markets. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the general comment before I answer that specifically is what I what what is actually becoming quite fascinating is that if you look at um, the right tail of emerging market banks in terms of quality, they are vastly more efficient than what you what we experience here, for example, in the UK, Europe, or the US. I mean, magnitude, orders of magnitude more efficient from a technology perspective. That it's it's night and day difference. So I think actually the 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 retail and the um, SME banking world of the of the West can actually learn a lot from what's going on in emerging markets right now. Uh, but and and Caspi is probably the one of the most interesting cases out of all of them. Um, uh, um, and 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 I guess a summary of the story, and I probably miss I will miss a few elements of it. But uh, is it's a bank that operates in uh, Kazakhstan. So Kazakhstan's 19 million people, um, GDP per capita of about eight thousand um, dollars. And the genesis of it, from as far as I am aware, is. Uh, you have this firm in in Russia called Bering Vostok that is, um, I would say, pretty successful uh, Russian private equity firm. They, they were behind some of the most um, kind of successful companies in the country. Uh, they had a partner that uh, was a Georgian gentleman, and as a side, as a quick aside, uh, Georgia, a population of four million, has created some of the most talented bankers in the world. It's just a very fascinating thing in itself. Uh, he decides to. Um, uh, take take on the management of uh, a, 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 a bank that 
Bering Vostok had owned in, 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 in Kazakhstan was like, I think it was like number 12, number 13 bank, a relatively insignificant bank, um, uh, which the general premise of what they started with, from was that no, no bank in the country is focused on unsecured consumer lending. Um, and that, that's quite a big market. And if you could figure out the data element of it, that you could probably credit underwrite and keep MPLs low. Um, and uh, that they could do it, um, they could do it uh, while transitioning from physical bank branches to all online. Why? Because really in the age of technology, you don't need ATMs, you don't need physical bank branches. When the majority of the population is young, uh, it's much easier and efficient for them to interact with you digitally as opposed to offline. Um, and they, over a number of years, basically built up a 40% market share in um, that, that consumer lending uh, uh, game, so to speak. Um, and then they started um, uh, building out kind of a payments infrastructure, so offline POS terminals in, in, amongst many merchants. Uh, they built out payment functionality, so peer-to-peer -peer payments, which were largely low-cost or free, which built up a level of virality amongst the the, the offline uh, merchant base and uh, consumers. Um, and then they started um, an e-commerce marketplace, the general premise being that, well, let's take the offline uh, world and bring it online. Um, and our, our bank will be lending to both sides of that equation, both the consumer and the merchants. Uh, through the fact that we are enabling the commerce through a platform, we have a lot of data which further helps us underwrite um, uh, credit on a larger scale. Um, and and the story, that's basically kind of a, a very simplistic view of what the story is. Now, where they have landed upon today is, is what's really interesting because in that population, 19 million, uh, they have 11 million monthly active users and they have 6 million daily active users. Um, there isn't a bank in the world that has that high level engagement, right? They're almost a ubiquitous operating system for the, for the general uh, population of the country. And I give you an example what that distribution means. They started airline ticketing as a business or as a product within that ecosystem, and they built up a forty percent market share in three months. It's incredible. Um, it the level of quality of execution that the management has displayed there is like. You could put them up against any management team in the world, really. To the, and so, again, it is a it is an outlier um, story, uh, but it puts up the following uh, game almost. If you can figure out distribution, if you can figure out a credit data underwriting, if you can figure out how to build a team that can execute very well and what are all deep markets you can build a very significant business. And just to put some numbers behind all of this, um, they listed it in, in, in London, uh, the IPO in London in 2020 at six and a half billion. Uh, today, they're a 15 billion market cap company doing about 2 billion net income a year with 60, 70% return on equity. It's pretty incredible. Um, so going back to the point I mentioned earlier, if the business has earned the right to it and is good enough, an exit will come. 15 billion in a population of 19 million as a country is, is crazy to think about as an enterprise value. Right. It's fantastic. I uh, was in Kazakhstan earlier this year and um, I was in Almaty actually and seeing, you know, the Caspi um, stickers right. outside of every single you know, shop. 
um, and I remember reading out this before I went there, um, you mentioned the kind of quickness of go-to market that comes with that type of customer intimacy, right? Yes. Uh, I think one of the companies that um, this guy, Ben Thompson, talks about that embodies this uh, aggregation theory of you know being that first point of customers that gives you immense leverage um, in, in the US is obviously Amazon, and they're going through some very interesting kind of antitrust issues right now because apparently they coerce their users into subscribing, which is, you know, most people... Yeah, I think the, the lady that's running the... Um... What's the competition? Is, is I mean, genuinely yeah, is a bit nuts. Car. It's just genuinely a bit nuts right now. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's pretty. It's absolutely in, in, in a time where the, this kind of technology aspect of things is so fundamentally important. You're fighting battles that are just I mean, irrelevant. Yeah, it it, it, goes, it goes to show that these um, types of misconceptions or difficulties in navigating or dealing with governments that may or may not be in the know is is universal. This is not just something. Yes, that yes, absolutely. It, just to Volatility is not an emerging market phenomenon. No, you, you basically from 2016 to 2020, you lived for four years in the US, where every day there was a tweet that would move stuff. Yeah, <laughs> from Mr. Trump. I mean, there is not you. You had is like the highest volatility in any political period. Coming out of the most developed country in the world, so that is a that, that is a kind of um, uh, yeah. I, I think that's not something to kind of only accuse emerging markets of. Definitely, um, I will also add. You mentioned the um, speed of acquiring that market share. Um, I, I think it took them less than a year to beat both Mastercard and Visa when it came to point of sale. Um, system oh, yeah, yeah, well. yeah. Uh, and now they're at eighty uh, percent market share. There, it's it, it, it's astounding. But well, the, the reason is that uh, for 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 a lot of these international companies which have some level of nominal presence in these countries, mm-hmm. they don't take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. Okay, Visa and Mastercard is there, but it, 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 the team operating there is not a team of superstars. Let's say, okay. Um, so if you are a little bit better, then um, you, you 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 take the market share away from them, and then and then. You can engage with them on your terms. So the follow-up question there is, what is Kean's and Sturgeon's theory of talent within uh, frontier and emerging markets in terms of understanding, one, the talent basis, and then two, capitalizing on that to accelerate uh, growth? In terms of uh, a general sense or in terms of the founders, for example, that we invest with? I was thinking of a general sense, but I'm actually also curious later on to get your thoughts on how the founder archetypes differ within these regions. Okay. I generally, I, I tell you my, my, my own personal experience and just from what I observe. So uh, I grew up in the countryside in the UK. Um, and every summer I got the, the privilege of two months spending it in Iran uh, with my mom's family. Okay. My mom has uh, six sisters, one brother fortunate or unfortunate in that situation and i have like 30 cousins 10 of them are around the same age as me and from the age of seven to let's say 18 it became abundantly clear to me that they were sharper than me on a level that uh, was was just a bit of a joke and they were sharper because what's the best way to describe it they were both hardened, uh, they were savvy, they were street smart. Uh, and I give you an example, I had a friend in Iran I would spend time, we, we, for whatever reason, we got on very well. This guy at 14 had opened two shops where he was, I know, I mean, let's say legally wasn't the best, he was copywriting music, downloading onto CDs, and basically he'd open his own HMV. At 14, the level of industriousness, it's just incredible. 
I, I still, I, I want. I, I, I've lost touch with him. I don't, I don't know where he is in the world. But I would love to love to meet him again because that's 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 what we're underwriting. There is enough of people like that that are just industrious. They're hungry. They kind of um, they they're constantly wanting to learn. So, and what I think we bring to the table to people like that is um, a layer of individuals that we work with that are very experienced in operating in these sort of countries. So almost can nurture that energy alongside us that are seeing a lot of samples of success and failure to really try and help um, good outcomes come about. Um, and so, yeah, on a general sense, I you just basically it's abundantly clear that um, people are as smarter, if not smarter than you. Um, and they just need more efficient systems to operate in. Um, and again, like the point I made earlier, is if you, you look at the diaspora of most of these countries, um, generally they're quite successful. Generally they're quite successful. How does Sturgeon think about setting up uh, sourcing nodes so they can get a first look at companies, uh, given that you guys are focused on venture within these regions right now? Yeah, so um, the, the, way we, the way we operate is um, we, I mean, we're London headquartered in the sense that we're FCA regulated here. Um, there's, uh, I'm, let's say, based here. The, the partners are based here. Uh, but largely, we are traveling most of the time. So like two weeks a month, we're traveling. Robin, uh, I call him our internal Marco Polo. He's, he's a tremendous guy. Uh, he travels three weeks a month. Um, but in every country that we invest in, we have a local team on the ground. And that's important for us for a few reasons. One is we believe, going back to my point of my 14-year-old friend, um, there are people that are significantly talented that also have happened to have the benefit of working in some of the best companies abroad that truly care about being in the country and doing good by the country that we can hire. And for, for them, we represent hopefully what is an interesting place to work at. And they usually are coming with a lot of local embedded network and knowledge. So for example, Saad, who leads Pakistan, he was uh, running the VC on the largest bank in the country. Before that, he was running the payments, one of the largest payments companies in the country. Before that, he built a mapping company in the U.S. and sold it. And before that, he was at Morgan Stanley and the technology team. Okay? You speak to the guy, um, he's the most intellectually curious, not only about the country he lives in and the country he's from, but given the, the spectrum of what he's done before, he has a very unique perspective on, 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 on what works and what doesn't and is embedded in the local network. And I think um, our general approach is that we want to earn the rights to be able to partner with the best entrepreneurs in these countries. Uh, and that what, that what that simply means is that to be not only um, a, a financing partner, but as much as possible, just a generally good business partner to them. Um, and over, over the years, that builds up the goodwill that I think largely if... Hopefully, if any company um, is of, of quality, uh, either they would naturally um, reach out to us um, or we would, we would have quickly the means to be able to reach out to them. Um, and so, so, so I like to think that whatever fits within that normal distribution curve of companies being formed in these countries, we have visibility on it. Fantastic. Fantastic. So one more question on the kind of more technical high level sure. stuff here, which is how does Sturgeon think about um, portfolio construction and how do they account for that as they kind of may have to rebalance in various ways when it comes to certain types of macro risks or I don't even know if that's kind of a concern given the long holding periods. No, but, no, no. It's, um, 
I think the way to think about it is to to go into the investment and have two scenarios prepared in your mind that will likely happen. At some point in time, operationally, there will be a make kind of make or break moment for the company, and at some point, um, macro-wise, there will be a make or break moment point for the company. Okay. Um, now, what 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 that implies is that you have to think about the building of these companies not as growth at all costs, but as I will always try to have two years of runway of cash in my bank, and I will always try to optimize for finding what the efficient frontier of growth is versus um, uh, liquidity available. Okay. So what, for example, that what that means is it may not be always the best choice to grow at 300% a year where you could grow at 100% a year. Where the, where because you actually don't have too much intense competition, unlike if you were doing this in the US, where from a game theory perspective, if you switch off growth, someone else will come take it away from you because there's an abundance of capital that will just find it there. Mm-hmm. In our markets, it's not like that. We can be much more deliberate about how we're... How, the entrepreneurs and the companies are building these businesses. Um, so that's kind of one contextual aside. Um, from a portfolio construction perspective, the way we see it is we want each company to uh, be able to return the fund, right? We want each company to be able to be one X the fund. Yeah. And we don't invest, our portfolios typically are between 15 to 20 companies at most. So within venture, that's considered relatively concentrated. Um, and um, when we think about what scenarios are in terms of outcomes for these companies, we're not really painting kind of, we're not really betting on plus billion dollar outcomes. Whilst they have shown themselves to be possible, largely the outcomes that we are looking at fall between 300 to 500 million in enterprise value when we, when we look at them. I.e., we believe that's, that's the sweet spot of where a lot of these companies will be in terms of where you could exit um, uh, realistic kind of uh, uh, right tail outcomes. That's what it will be. Clearly, there is a chance that some of them could be much larger than that. Uh, if you ever kind of find the stars align and you kind of find the Caspi type situation, for example, that is possible. Uh, so, so we try to be relatively conservative in what we're expecting in terms of outcomes. Um, all with the kind of underwriting idea that we're trying to um, trying to underwrite kind of five to six net uh, multiple outcome on the funds that we invest in. Okay, and that I, I realize that a lot of funds kind of say that, but the reality, if you look at upper quartile DPI on these funds, is one point seven six. The reality is no one, very few, actually get five six x net. Yeah, it, it it strikes me as being a bit more honest in terms of how that curve of outcomes can be distributed is um, when it comes to understanding that you want to actually, and, and, and this has kind of confounded me, um, is uh, the nature of kind of, at least for my peers, those who participate in the more kind of San Francisco flavored um, venture ecosystem is the nature of kind of like very flippant underwriting at the beginning, which I think yes. is actually good for innovation. I think burning money is yes. good for it's better. It's better that that money goes in than it doesn't go in because it's these things are binary in nature. 
Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so you can make the case that a lot of the great technologies that we've benefited from over the past ten years is a function of low interest rates. The ideal system would be that at any point in time, going back to kind of efficient banking model based on data, that capital will find its its way to the most productive means. But in a capitalist system, that doesn't really happen. You have to burn your fingers before that happens. Mm-hmm. Right? Totally, totally. And it's um, it's interesting because I, I have a friend who, for example, raised recently. Um, they, they haven't announced it yet, but it was a situation where he'd raised the pre-seed, the investors were so happy with him that within three months' time, they'd just seen him kind of just blow other folks within that cohort out of the water, and they were like, we want more of your company. Um, he was reluctant to kind of take it on, but he took it on. And uh, the the mindset that's inculcated as a result is very oh. much that of, um, you need to swing for the fences in terms of your outcomes here, because we're actually disappointed with you if you reach again not exactly below a certain hurdle rate but if Absolutely. you don't you know 100x and i found it interesting because that comes from certain assumptions in the portfolio construction model which comes from certain assumptions of what the range of outcomes can be but it strikes me that the thing that shapes that in like vc law is um really these these outliers that are so historically contingent if that makes sense you think about facebook google um yeah. Well, think about it this way. Yeah. The, the, the other elements, the other variable that's important over the past 10 years is that the size of the funds have become so large. So I think maybe it'll be useful for your listeners to, to kind of understand some back of the envelope maths when it comes to VC fund mathematics. And by the way, if you're an entrepreneur, you should know this and you should, every investor that you're speaking to, you should you should basically ask them, what are you underwriting as a rate of return? That's your cost of capital. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a kind of uh, aside. So let's say let's say you run a fifty million fund and you want to five exit, okay? And assume simplistically that you own ten percent fully diluted in your portfolio of companies, okay? To create a five x outcome, you need to create uh, those companies need to be worth uh, uh, two billion dollars uh, collectively by the end of it, okay? So the question then is, where does $2 billion in enterprise value come from? All right. Now run that on a half a billion fund in an area where you've had mega funds. The numbers become huge. And you look at how statistically insignificant it is for to create plus $10 billion, $20 billion outcomes. I, I, I sit on the side of, I, I'm obsessed about the right tail and kind of working towards trying to create the right tail. But you have to also be very objective about how you look at that data. Yes. They are outlier outcomes, right? Um, and that forces, as you, as you absolutely rightly said, a very different mentality on a founder that is running a business at a million dollars in revenue and gets funded at $100 million because the VC fund needs to put capital to work. And unless you get to $10 million in revenue within 18 months, you're considered an idiot, right? And speaking very bluntly, I mean, of course, it's not as blunt as that, but broadly, it's kind of what's going on. That's not very healthy, right? That's not very sustainable. Uh, it creates a perverse incentive system, um, so on and so forth. So uh, the discussion, and it's quite fascinating to see in terms of the discussions that we have with founders, Whereas a year or two years ago, the discussion was such and such person is in my cap table. I'm closing my round in two weeks. Um, are you in or you're out? Here's my data room. <laughs> Have one call and maybe, maybe okay. Now the discussion is, is, is a deeply uh, useful one. It's saying, what is the cash you have at the moment? 
what would it take you really hand on heart objectively to get to a point where this business can actually run profitably? Such that you can build the dashboard that you understand how to calibrate the business up or down as you need. Mm-hmm. That you understand the playbooks in the different areas from your sales team to your back-end product team to every, to every element. Of, you have that dashboard in front of you so you can tweak. And then we run through scenarios saying, well, how much capital would it take to be a little bit more aggressive? In a world where you don't actually have competition because liquidity in these markets completely is dried up. Yeah. Right? But if we can invest in situations where companies have two, three years of runway ahead of them now and have an operating playbook that gets them to kind of a position of consolidating market share in whatever vertical that they're in, you're coming out of that side very strong. Right? Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, if we just go back for a second, we were talking yeah, yeah. about um, macro risk and we're talking about portfolio construction. Um, one thing... One of my favorite uh, lines or quotes here is from so Peter Thiel's the LP in this fund that's called Mithril Capital, which um, invests in kind of like long-term frontier technologies. Yep. And uh, in one of the kind of you know, videos where he's kind of reviewing the fund, he talks about the importance of not just focusing on the macro, but focusing on the particulars and focusing on the bottoms up to kind of not get tricked by common narratives in some sense. And it yes. strikes me that when folks on the outside, see narratives of I volatility or be um, uh, certain types of macro tailwinds that may seem kind of adverse, be it you know, currency depreciation, etc. Sure. Automatically, it's like black or white thinking, oh, it's impossible to succeed yeah. in doing business in these countries. But I've come across, and I think you have probably invested in some of these companies that have succeeded in spite of that because they know how to navigate this. And there's a reason why, for example, I, I think I was speaking to someone who um, his family had business in kind of Venezuela. And... Um, they've you know endured some shocking things quite frankly yeah. um and so i uh i'm curious could you share like a particular story of a company that is emblematic of the type of success that can happen in a context where say there's certain types of inflationary issues or there's certain types of kind of macro backdrops that may not be compelling but nonetheless a particular company is able to succeed and produce compelling outcomes in that context sure i'll um I mean, one thing to quickly notice just just to be clear um we are, or I am not sadistic in nature that we're looking for, for, for scenarios where we're going to experience difficulty. We, we, under, <laughs> we understand that the reality of the, the, the countries that we operate in are generally a little bit more difficult, but uh, we're not there to embrace it. I mean, we're there to try and navigate around it. The, I think the best story that, well, the one that immediately comes to mind, so in my mind, that must be my natural um, answer, is a company in Iran, actually. Um, and um, so in, 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 in 2016, we, when, when sanctions lifted in the country, we, 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 pulled, we pulled some capital together to be the founding investors in two companies. And one of the companies in particular I'll talk about um, is, and the story behind um, the founder, I think, is um, uh, quite fascinating. Um, but l- let me actually touch on him after. The general principle of the business was what? was that Iran, uh, every year you have 25 to $30 billion of used car transactions. Very big. It's a very big auto market. Auto ownership is very high. Um, average car price is around $10,000. Um, and that actually it's a counter-cyclical asset because in a country where inflation is um, uh, pretty high and you have high currency devaluations, uh, people own those cars as an inflation hedge. 
meaning in those years where you have currency devaluations in the newspapers alongside stock prices you have car prices it's almost a traded commodity and that largely is traded through um, unorganized offline dealers or methods and so on and so forth the general premise of the business was to build almost similar to what Carvana and um, uh, uh, all these kind of auto marketplaces built where um, you basically a consumer can 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 put the details of their their car in typically their number plate um, you can get a range quote uh, you have an inspection um, and then you can give you can give them immediate liquidity um, off off the back of that you can then sell that to uh, used car dealers or back to the consumer for a classifieds business uh, but because auto is a very large market and you don't really have too much competition it's worth spending a bit of money on trying to build out a business in it um, uh, and that and that probably it's resilient to the reality of the economic volatility because both prices and volume of transactions go up when the economy goes down and in normalized times you're just acquiring market share as time goes on um, so this we we, we, we we were the first investors um, and for the first two years whilst the country was not sanctioned I spent a lot of time with Nader, the founder who I've who's now become a, a very close friend um, to try and, and 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 just to put it uh, absolutely honestly he did 80 percent of the work I did 20 percent of the work even that's probably being kind of uh, overemphasizing my my input really he he was he led everything um, and the outcome basically is a business which today is the largest uh, online used car business in the country um, this year it will probably transact around 120 million dollars in cars maybe more about 150 million last year it did about 95 million that in those years and it, that has gone through two years of 80 percent currency devaluation yet in those years has still grown in dollar terms revenues at 50 percent to 100 percent um, has and has built and has built today a profitable business it doesn't burn money and has built this on margins of three and a half percent when usually this industry is at seven percent um, and built it on roughly three million dollars in capital uh, put in this is in a world where Carvana Kavak these guys raise billions yes going back to our discussion earlier they let's say basically put a lot of money on fire not because they were bad bad actors because again because of the incentive systems that are created yeah, there's there's an oversaturation on these kind yes. of categories. Whereas, as you mentioned here, um, because there is this kind of you know set of hurdles for yes. other investors to participate, um, those who dig deeper um, are very well positioned to be highly capital efficient yes. when you find the right opportunities. And just to just to two words on another, who in my mind, based on kind of everyone that I've I've seen, is one of the I put him as the top three operators out there. Really, oh, wow. is that good? Um, uh, grew up in grew up in Iran. Um, uh, education was obviously important to his parents. So went to study in the U.S. Was working for a while in the U.S. At the age of 27, his family business back home was having somewhat difficulties, and basically single-handedly, as a 27-year-old, saved it. Um, in parallel, then started this company, got it to where it is today, um, and as a side hustle, basically built it. A textile business that probably today does somewhere between five to eight million in revenues. 
Incredible. Okay, just a supremely talented guy. I'm always inspired and fascinated by uh, second or third generation um, founders of these businesses who either take, as I mentioned, a business that's having a cyclical downturn or just as interesting, they unlock like a new level of growth. And so one of my favorite case studies of this is uh, Mohammed Delji in um, Tanzania. So Delji Group is diversified across several sectors right now. But the turning point was they went from, I think, what must have been um, $30 million in today's terms, um, revenue in the 90s. They were a part of some of the privatizations, but really what they've been focusing on are core pieces of like industrial apparatus within Tanzania, which is stuff like you know, uh, Coca-Cola bottling, for example, and um, uh, also agri-processing in general. And um, now they do about $3 billion, $4 billion in revenue per year. And this is Mohammed. He, he went to school in um, DC, came back, and it, it was his kind of you know, aura that kind of like took things yes. in, in that way. And I think um, finding folks... I, I I would love to learn more about the patterns of those folks because I think that that's a core pattern. Uh, that, that's, that's like a lot of what we temp, as a firm spend time on trying to study. There is this awkward element of there is implicit in your investment a, a judgment almost on the ability of the people you're investing in. And that's awkward because um, every single human has faults, yourselves as a team included. And so who are you to judge these people almost? But 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 you are either implicitly or explicitly judging them, so you have to kind of do it seriously. So we we try to take it seriously to think about all the patterns that we see and kind of what largely could probably explain um, successful outcomes. But probably worth a different podcast. Fantastic. Hopefully. Um, all right. Final two questions. Sure. One is, who are some of the folks who've inspired you and in your journey um, in life in general? Look, I. I there are so many. I mean, I, my, I think I'm like the luckiest dude alive because I, um, for whatever reason, I had, or I have, just a really pretty incredible father. I mean, uh, the, he's just really hardworking, um, really disciplined, um, is extremely kind, and just does stuff without making a show of it. Right. Uh, there are so many things he did for me as a kid that I didn't even know he did. My mom would tell me later on. He wouldn't make a show of kind of saying, by the way, I did hold it over your head. I did this for you. Uh, no, he just did it. He just kind of... Uh, so he was incredible. He is an incredible individual. I'm just very lucky to kind of be able to call him my father. Um, and I was also lucky because I fell into whatever re- for whatever reason I like reading and I found this natural system of... I read about someone or something and obviously just admire them but within the story of reading about them you would find other topics that you didn't know about or other people that they sounded interesting and um, you start reading about them and largely i think my education came from that um and probably if i think about who um inspired me i think it's so cliche now because it's so popular but buffett clearly is one i mean it's just you cannot read about that guy, read his letters and overwhelmingly come back with the feedback that this is just such a uniquely amazing individual. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I think probably my favorite person ever is uh, Richard Feynman. I just, like for me, it's kind of a personal ritual that I read his book every year because there is no, there's not someone that um, uh, for me uh, demonstrated how to enjoy and live a wholesome life as much as he did. Um, and then there are like so many 
people that I've had the luck of meeting in life or again I've read about that are specifically uh, inspiring in their own way. Um, I, I always had this silly idea I'd one day create a wall of the pictures of all these people, but there's is it goes into the hundreds because I've uh, been lucky that for whatever reason I've just spent my time immersing myself and studying this this stuff and um, getting to speak to people that are pretty amazing. Wonderful. I appreciate the uh, wholesome comment on Feynman as well. I think, uh, you know, having an aura of kind of play with vocation is... Well, the, well the, 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 the reality, I think, I mean, at least in my sense that you come to a conclusion is that it's all good and well to be this guy, to be this person that has just got it economically figured out as successful or whatever. But that's a very um, limiting view on life. Uh, basically, you... the what's 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 interesting is those people that really are wholesome right they're, as in uh you can objectively tell that their kids love them uh their wife or their husband loves them um their circle of friends um uh loves them uh the people that they work with uh i don't think I should say love them but kind of enjoy them uh, uh respect them and that all of that all of that was earned objectively was earned it wasn't cheated it wasn't grabbed it wasn't manipulated over it was earned and uh you come to the conclusion that if you want whatever it is that you want in life you have to earn it yeah <laughs> basically, I, I, basically I, I, there's no I, cheating I, I there's no fast track there's no three years there's no five years just run it and and it basically implies in my mind uh, uh, living life at a difficulty level of eight out of ten and above consistently day in day out it's pretty difficult wonderful wonderful um i i, I appreciate the, 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 you said earned multiple times there but also earlier in the podcast as well it's like a core term that you've used in terms of that thought pattern of oh we want to earn the trust of our founders we want to earn the trust of the jurisdiction that we're working in um and it also applies to you know the small symbolic things or the big actions that you take for those in your life as well um i think it's fantastic and uh final question is I was going to ask for a piece of advice, but I guess that may fall within that. But if you have additional sure. advice for listeners, please share. And the second one is, um, you mentioned readings. Um, in terms of stuff that's less known, um, you know, more esoteric readings, not necessarily Feynman, but stuff that you've come across in these rabbit holes that you'd recommend for listeners, um, would love to hear that as well. Yeah, so maybe on the, the last point first, um, a book that I find is foundational and actually Naval, if you know who he is, talks about talks about it. It's a book called Beginning of Infinity. It's by this Oxford physicist, which kind of tracks the history of um, knowledge, basically, and makes the case that um, the Enlightenment period and uh, the rapid growth of GDP of the world over the past couple of hundred years was largely a function of the ability of people to reason better. And what it means to reason better, um, and I mean, my takeaway from it is that it's so fundamentally important that um, you, as an individual, and ideally people as a as a whole, um, have objective reasoning when it comes to things, uh, as as i.e. Uh, is a, is devoid of bias and all that stuff. I think it's a very fundamental like book to read. Um, I think Feynman's book is a fundamental book to read. I really do. It's a it's a, it's um, a story of a life lived well. Um, um, that that certainly is one. Um, I think I think 
if you care about business a little bit, what I would read is um, all of Buffett letters from when he managed his partnership in the first day till Berkshire halfway today. It's like six, 700 pages, whatever, but just read it. What you see there is the journey of um, one of the most incredible individuals become who he is over 50 years. It's a 50-year quarterly record of it. It's a business journal of one of the most successful individuals. There, It's never been more available. Just read it. It's like, it's like just no doubt that it's useful to you. Um, if, I, if I may, some high level I, ones, yeah. one thing I'll share on the Buffett point is whilst I've not read all of the shareholder letters, one uh, book that's similar to that that was released recently is the financial history of Berkshire Hathaway. And it goes through, um, you know, as mentioned, quarterly, you know, from the time that he acquires Berkshire, actually before Berkshire even gets acquired. and Go, go back to when he started his partnership at the age of 21 or 22. Those are the letters yeah. to start from. Yeah. But, but what, what, what I want to point to here, which is just as interesting, you mentioned, you know, becoming, right? This idea of like, you know, trial and error in becoming yes. someone either competent or good as, as a person. But in this case, in terms of competence, um, I found it fascinating to see how, he bought Berkshire at a time when it was probably one of the worst times to buy a company of that sort. And all the great tailwinds for that business had kind of diminished for that region. And it talks about that. And it talks about how he divests and it's like, he's, he's touched the stove and he's like, damn it, I was too impulsive with this purpose. And it talks about the capital reallocation program that he engages in to do that. So the idea that he came out of the womb knowing all these things is kind of, you know. Yeah, uh, and to be honest, by the way, yeah. those first two books that I mentioned, Feynman and uh, the uh, Beginning of Infinity, Buffett is the merger of the two. <laughs> Interesting. I never thought of that. Buffett is like the most logical person that's understood how to live life well. He has like objective reasoning and there's no, that's basically uh, what it is. That's how I see it. Now, going to your earlier question, look, I, I, don't like particularly giving advice because I'm 33 and I haven't lived life long enough to kind of be, but, but just based, this is my observations based on what I see. I, uh, it's easy to be cynical, but cynical about the times that we live in so on and so forth, but we live in a time of really great abundance. If you have, I basically, my, let's I'm having, um, a daughter due in the next two weeks. So I think about this stuff quite a lot, yes. uh, but basically the way I see it is, Find whatever it is that you're truly passionate about, whatever it may be. Don't think about how my parents will judge it, how my friends will judge it, Just and, and judge it by this factor. Does it give you energy in abundance? Whatever that thing is, it will probably hopefully over, overlap with some innate skill set that you have that will unleash in you um, a curiosity to know all of it. And whatever that thing is, know all of the history of it, know all of the people that have done it, and why it is the way it is today. And then within that, understanding that reality, think about where you want to play within it. Okay? Then, what do you do? We live in a world of infinite leverage, right? You can put content out, and there are people that have put content out that reaches hundreds of millions of people. Okay. Now, if you've done a lot of, a bit of thinking and what you thought about is valuable, you can also create something. Now, okay. Maybe not a hundred million people, but at least in the thousands or tens of thousands of people, you can find your community, mm -hmm. right? Your stakeholders, whoever you want to do it. And then just play it by ear and broadly be logical and avoid doing stupid, big, stupid stuff. That's basically it, I think. I love it. And constantly try to just 
re-underwrite yourself every year. Inevitably, every year you you look back on yourself and the year before and go, God, I was a bit of an idiot in that kind of thing that I did. But you have to hold the mirror to yourself and kind of just improve. Like contain the bad stuff and harness the good stuff. And have okay. that as an ongoing process. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much, Kian. I've deeply no enjoyed this. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah.